We've been on a journey uh, kind of led by an author, A.W. Tozer, um, where we're exploring how to find uh, the peace that hopefully all of you are beginning to find as you've kind of been in, in taking some of this in and, and going through it. But the, the idea of presence and living in the presence of God, not just arriving there, not just visiting there, but living in that presence. And so as we continue to do that, one of the most con- uh, important concepts in Scripture to this process is faith. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Kind of to set the stage, let me just uh, give you some scripture from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're going to focus in on part of verse 2, but I kind of want to just give you some context also so you're there with me. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2. Listen to this. The writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. We do this by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion, who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. Now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. I love that terminology. I love the imagery that the writer uses there. And I love the idea of running a race. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't like to run races. Amen? You guys know me well enough to know that I believe that that verse in Scripture, people keep sending it to me, where only the wicked run when no one is chasing them. I don't even remember where it's found. But somebody sent me that. It was very ironic and very funny. But anyway, I'm not a race runner. And the one time I did run a 5K... Uh, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago, was um, when we had the, the fundraiser for Sandy, and I ran for the very first time in my life a 5K. I can tell you two things. I did not run in such a way as to win, and nor did I run in such a way that I ran with endurance, <clears throat> because I had none. I cheated. I found a little kid to walk with and pretended I was protecting them from all the dangers along the trail. Um, but I finished the race. Make no mistake. I did finish, but I did not as Paul is telling us to run. And I feel like by mentioning faith in the midst of this imagery, Paul is trying to tell us that there is something in faith that helps us to be able to do that. To look on Jesus is always a good thing. When Paul says that that we are to keep our eyes on Jesus, that's never a bad thing. But here he describes that uh, Jesus as being the author and the finisher, if you look at the older translations, the, the initiator and the perfecter of our faith, if you look at the modern. Faith is important. If you look at the scriptures, even if you've never read them before, even if you knew nothing about God, nothing about Christianity, nothing about the church, if you were to pick up a Bible and just start reading it from beginning to end, you would see from the sheer number of times that faith is mentioned, that faith is important in this thing called Christianity. It is important in our relationship with God. Just a few scriptures that kind of reinforce that. Luke 17, 5. When the disciples were with Jesus and they were talking with him about a lot of different things. Jesus was only here for like three years. He had limited time to talk to his disciples. They had limited time to pick his brain and to learn all that they could about God and who he is. And yet they took the time in this scripture for for them to ask the question, Lord, show us how to increase our our faith. Show us, Jesus, how to increase our faith. They knew faith was important, and they, they questioned Jesus about that. In Romans 4, 3, the, the, he, um, Paul says, For the scriptures tell us Abraham believed God, 
And God counted him as righteous because of his faith. Understand that in the Old Testament, righteousness was all about doing the right thing. It was all about obeying the right rules and, and doing the right, uh, obeying the right laws and following the right sacrificial codes. It was all about those things. And when Jesus came with all of his talk of love and grace and faith, the, the Israelites were saying, well, what about our father Abraham? Are you just discounting his whole experience? And Jesus is answering them and he says, listen, Abraham wasn't seen as righteous because of what he did. He was seen as righteous because of his faith. God counted his belief as faith. Hebrews 11.6 says it plainly. And it is impossible to please God without faith. Isn't pleasing God kind of what we're all here for? I mean, if you're following Christ, that's kind of the goal. Faith is a big deal. Tozer has some words to say about faith. Listen to this quote. He says, Faith will get me anything. Take me anywhere in the kingdom. But without faith, there can be no approach to God. No forgiveness, no deliverance, no salvation, no communion, in fact, no spiritual life at all. Without faith, it is impossible to come. So so important. The question becomes, do we have it, right? And that's a question each of us has to answer for ourselves. Do we have faith? Are we building our faith? Our mission statement as a church is to grow in faith, serve people together. Do we have faith as a church? Do we have faith as an individual? In order to figure that out, we kind of need to define faith, don't we? How many of you would love it if the Bible just gave us a straight-up definition for what faith is? I would love that. But God is mysterious, and He likes to make us think. Did you ever go to your parents and ask them a question, and instead of giving you the answer, they asked you a question in return? How many of you hated that? I always hated that. And I'm like, can you just answer me? No, I want you to think about it. I think that's why God never gave us a straight, uh, I can't say description, a straight um, definition of what faith is. In Scripture, where we find faith talked about, one of the plainest places where faith is described to us is in Hebrews 11.1, 1, where it says, faith shows reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things that we cannot see. But even that isn't a definition. It's a description of how faith works itself out in real life. We know, for instance, from Scripture that faith is a gift from God. It's not something we can... Um, faith is something that comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the Word of God. Scripture says that as well. So to define faith any more than this is difficult for us. The best thing that we can do is to try to live out what we know faith is. Thomas Akempis, many years ago, said these words, I had rather exercise faith than know the definition thereof. We don't have to know the definition if we can live a life that reflects it. And so to better understand faith, Tozer points us to a story from the Old Testament, a a very strange kind of story. One of those stories that makes us today kind of scratch our heads and say, is that really how it happened? But it's one of those stories that's included. It's basically about a bunch of snakes and the Israelites. The Israelites seem to learn a lot of lessons on their journey out of Egypt. You remember, some of you may remember, in in the Old Testament, the Israelites were trapped in Egypt. They were slaves there, and and they wanted desperately to get out from under Egypt's thumb. And and so God sent Moses there, and he, of course, talked to the burning bush and led them out of Egypt across the Red Sea. And, And during that journey through the wilderness... A lot of New Testament characters go back to that that time in their history and refer to those passages. And I think the reason is this. I think the reason is this. Israel was learning in that phase how to follow God. 
because they literally had to follow God. It was a pillar of fire by uh, day and a pillar of, no, pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they were literally following this across the wilderness. And along the way, God taught them some of the most important lessons they would need. But this one is just a little odd. Let me read it for you. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. How many of you have children and you've experienced the people growing patient with the long journey? Impatient, I should say. With long. Yes, there have been times I wanted that, you know that shield that chauffeurs have that goes up behind your seat? How many of you wish your car had that sometimes? That's definitely me. Anyway, so the people grew impatient with the long journey and they began to speak against God and Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt? To die here in the wilderness? They complained. There's nothing to eat here. Listen to this. They contradict themselves right here. There's nothing to eat here, nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. We have nothing to eat, but we hate what we're eating. Huh? These people are ungrateful. Do you remember just a few short chapters before this, when they were starving to death in the desert, God sent them bread from heaven, manna, and they rejoiced over it, right? They were like, wow, our God has provided. They probably even gave him a new name of some sort. They were always doing that kind of thing. And now, after eating manna for so long, they're sick and tired of it. It isn't enough for God to provide what they need. They want what they want. Boy, does that sound like anybody we know? I'll just leave that there. There's nothing to eat here, and we hate this horrible manna. So, verse 6, this is where it gets weird. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. And cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole, and all who are bitten will live... If they simply look at it. Now notice, they weren't to bow down to it. They weren't supposed to worship it. They were just supposed to look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze, attached it to a pole, and anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. Now the reason this story helps us with faith is because Jesus referred to this story as he was teaching one night. There was this time period in John chapter 3, we read about a conversation Jesus had with a man by the name of Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was one of the guys who was supposed to have it all figured out, but in his head he had questions. And so he got Jesus alone at night so none of his cronies would see him, and he began to ask him questions about salvation and about faith. And in the midst of that conversation, Jesus said this, John three fourteen and 15, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness... So the Son of Man, what are you doing? Is my mic being freaky? Okay. If I gesture too hard and this flies at any of you, catch it. Did I read that part? I was in the process. Let's read it again just so I can get my thoughts. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, of course he's talking about himself, must be lifted up 
so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. All right, there we go. So Jesus is basically drawing a parallel between the serpent in the wilderness, which when looked at brought salvation for the people and through himself for himself as he was going to be lifted up on a cross and people would look to him and find salvation. The interesting thing is in the Old Testament, it specifically says, look, but Jesus doesn't use the word look. He uses the word believe. Now, I think what he's trying to do is make a connection there between looking and believing. Because when you put that together with what Paul said in Hebrews, where he says that we're to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, we can draw the conclusion that the way that we build our faith, the way that we believe, the way that we express our faith is to look upon Jesus, to bring him firmly into our view and to keep him in our view, to focus on him above all else. Um, believing is directing the heart's attention to Jesus. Because even though the Israelites looked with their eyes, in order to believe in Jesus, we have to do that in the innermost part of our being. So we have to believe essentially with our soul. And so if we turn the, 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 the gaze of the soul upon the Savior, I believe that we will find God looking back at us and meeting our gaze. What an amazing idea, right? And so the idea here is that we're to look on him. When we train our souls to look upon the Savior and to keep our gaze there, then the distractions of self, the distractions of this world, and all of the things that happen around us kind of fade away from our view. And and even if we're momentarily distracted by them later in time, we will have trained ourselves that, that once the distraction is over, we look back to the Savior, and that's where our view, that's where the, the gaze of our soul should lie at all times. And so we come back to it. What a wondrous byproduct it is that that when we look at God, we lose sight of ourselves. You see, faith looks out. It doesn't look in. Faith is something as we look at Christ, we build that and it looks outward. So many of us try to fix ourselves by focusing on ourselves and it doesn't work very well. I think in today's world, we're obsessed with our issues. Amen? How many times have you gone to lunch with somebody and all they wanted to talk about was all the stuff that's wrong with them, right? And and maybe not even in a physical. Now, I'm getting older, and I've noticed that I do this. When somebody says, how you doing, Pastor Jeff? Oh, my back hurts, and I got this cough right here. You know, it seems like every time somebody starts a conversation, I want to tell them about my issues. It's it's a trap, right? As you get older, I feel like it's just going to get worse. I'm probably going to do that forever now because I'm old. I don't know. But even more than physical things, you know, a lot of times when we get together with people, all they want to talk about is the ways that they failed and the things they're struggling with. And you know what? That's okay because we're there to listen. And we should listen. And we should encourage them and do the best that we can. But I think the problem is we focus too much on our issues and not where our eyes should be focused on. We try to fix ourselves by focusing on ourselves when what we need to do is look at Christ. If we fix our gaze on Him, then the very work that we've been trying to do on ourselves, the fixing that we've been trying to do for ourselves will happen because we're fixing our gaze on the one who is perfect. And as we look at the one who is perfect, then we will learn how to be perfect as he is perfect. And the very things we've been trying to do to ourselves will fix themselves as we pattern our lives and our faith after him. You will never purify your life by starting, by staring at the imperfections of it. You will never purify your life by focusing on your imperfections. All you will do is make yourself depressed. Amen? You'll never do it. Remember that old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus? Man, there's so much truth there. 
Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? I could do the whole thing. It all fits here. Really, it does. I'm telling you, if we get our gaze off of ourselves and we put our eyes on Christ, then so many of the things that we're battling and fighting would begin to take care of themselves. I'm not minimizing them. I'm not saying there aren't struggles. There certainly are. But if you want to succeed in your struggles, put your eyes on Jesus. If you want to be pure, then focus the gaze of your soul on the one who is pure. Faith looks out, not in. And when you do that, I believe your life will begin to fall into line. Believing and looking being similar things, if, if, if what he is teaching here, if what Paul is trying to tell us is that it, it is as easy as looking to the Savior for us to believe, then that really changes how we do things. It, it means that anyone can do it. It's as simple, uh, it, it's as, simple as, as any man, woman, or child raising their eyes to the Savior and meeting the gaze of God. It's that simple for you to become a believer, a follower. It's not just for mystics. It's not just for pastors or worship leaders. Anybody can live their eyes to heaven and and plant their gaze on the Savior, and they will see him coming back. You don't need anything special to do it. You don't require any special equipment or religious paraphernalia. For a lot of years in the church, we believed that the altar was the only place you could find Jesus. I got news for you. This altar is sacred. I love it. I love to see people praying at it, but you don't need an altar to believe in Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? You could go to get baptized and the baptistry could be empty or cold and, you, you know, just isn't going to work. And you could still that day know Jesus and believe in him with all your heart. I, I'm here to say that if, if communion was denied to you, some face will argue with me on this. Even if communion was di- denied to you and you didn't have the elements and you couldn't do it, you can still believe. Even if some faithless group Some sect of Christianity says, we're sorry, but we don't like you, so we're not going to grant you entrance into the church. You can still believe. Because it doesn't doesn't take anything other than what God has put in you to do it. You don't have to do it at a specific time. Thank goodness you don't have to only get saved at revivals, because we really don't do those anymore, do we? Right? How many of you remember, you know, revival? Well, i got to get my cousin there, because he needs to get saved. You know, church meets every Sunday, gospel is preached every Sunday, or you could just witness to them too. I mean, there's that, but oh, I got to get them to revival. What about Christmas? Man, there's just something special about seeing the face of Jesus in that manger. Okay, first and foremost, it's either a doll or somebody's kid who's going to grow up to be naughty. I'm just saying, Tori's home church, they used to do a live nativity, you know, during their service, and um, the youngest baby in the church got the honor of being in the manger. And um, if the, the little girl that was playing Mary was responsible enough, sometimes they got to hold the baby. Usually they just left it in the manger because they didn't want him to dry. Tori got to actually hold the baby. I'm just telling you that because she's very proud of that when she got to do it. But let's be honest, man. It's not Jesus. And Christmas is a wonderful time to remember what Jesus did. But you don't have to wait till Christmas time to find Jesus. You can look at the face of the Christ child any day of the week, any part of the year. Easter is not the only time to see Jesus high and lifted up on the cross. You can celebrate the resurrection every day, and I do. Every day when I get out of bed and my bones crack and everything hurts, I say, thank you, Jesus. I was able to get up. I thought that would get an amen. Nobody else feels that way in the morning. Nobody, just me. 
I'm telling you, we need to start celebrating every day. It does not take a special time. It does not take a special place. Listen, you could be out in the middle of the wilderness with nobody or nothing around, even if you had never heard the gospel. If you looked and turned your gaze to the Savior, you would find him looking back, and you could believe in that moment. Now, don't think for a moment that I'm downplaying the importance of the, of the altars or baptism or public worship or holy celebrations throughout the year. These things have a great deal of value and they help us to grow in our faith. But our ability to see God and believe in Him is not dependent on these things. Only Jesus. That's all we need. And as we see God, then we begin to see the value of prayer at the altar and baptism as a testimony of our faith. And worship with the body of Christ as an opportunity to strengthen and encourage not only ourselves but each other. And and building our faith by setting our gaze on Christ is the best way to strengthen the community of faith. We live in an individualistic world. And I know in the church sometimes we rail against that. Because in the church, we believe in unity and we want everybody to be in tune with each other. And the temptation of a lot of pastors and a lot of churches is to say, listen, you got to come to our church so that we can be unified. And, And certainly there is unity when people gather and fellowship and have relationship with each other. But the most primary thing that will help us to build unity is not people coming into line and and tuning themselves to the church. It'll be people coming in line and, and tuning themselves into Christ. As, as Tozer puts it, I love this quote. He, he says this in response to those who say that he's being too individualistic. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? First of all, I don't ever want to hear 100 pianos all at one time. But I want you to think about that. A hundred pianos tuned to the same fork will always be in tune with each other. Now, if you take a piano and you tune it to another piano, there's no guarantees that that piano is in tune. Friends, it's like that in the church. If we all focus our gaze on Christ and tune in our lives to his, then we will become one with each other. We will come closer together as a body and closer together as a unit because as we grow closer to God, we grow closer together. Do I have to do what I do in premarital counseling for you people? It's a, it's a triangle like this. Husband, wife, God. Okay? As you move closer to each other, what happens? You get, or as you move closer to God, what happens? You grow closer to each other. Friends, fix your gaze on Christ. Do not look at me, okay? I am not the one worthy of having you fix your gaze on. There is no leader in Battle Creek, in Michigan, in the United States, or in the world that is worthy of you to fix your gaze on. You can notice us if you want, but don't fix your gaze there because Jesus is the only one that is perfect that will never let you down. And if we all tune into him, we will be in tune with each other. And consider this with me. If believing is looking upon Christ, then our mission to share Christ with the world is not nearly as intimidating as some people think. We don't need to convince people. We don't need to debate with them. We don't need to shame them or guilt them into believing. Our task is simply to lift up Christ and let them see him. That's what Jesus commands. He says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. If, If we allow people to see Christ, if we point them in the direction and they look upon the Savior and lift their gaze to him, they too will see him gazing back at them and they will find the the strength that they need to believe. Our job is to let them see Christ, to help them see Christ, to get out of the way so they can see him for who he really is. Because if they see him, 
they will want a relationship with him, just as we have. Our Savior, when seen through us, is sometimes not nearly as clear of a vision as we might like. Our job is to let them see him. If we're trying to show Christ to the world without gazing upon him ourselves, then we will fail miserably. And i got to tell you, we are failing miserably. We've got to see the Savior. I believe that we need to point our eyes at him, and then everybody else will follow. Friends, these words that I'm sharing today are both encouraging and an indictment at the same time. Because I believe that the the evidence of what's happening in the church today, seeing people as scattered and, and at odds with each other as they sometimes have been over the last few years, has basically declared to the world that the church of Jesus Christ, their focus is not on me. Because if we were tuned into the Savior, we would be tuned into each other. Now, certainly there will be disagreements. Certainly we will sometimes interpret things differently. But friends, when it comes down to it, if we can't love each other, then we are not displaying the mission of Christ. If we are not living in unity with each other in the big things, we can disagree on the small stuff. You know, you can don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do all you want. I mean, that's that's what I grew up believing was the most important thing. I got news for you, it's not. The most important thing is for us to see Christ and to display Christ and to point the world to Christ. And if we look at him, they will look at him. I hate weddings. Can I just mention that? Hate them. If I'm up here, if I'm down there, I love sitting back and critiquing the pastor who's doing the wedding. That's a lot of fun. I understand why you people do it now. It's a lot of fun. That was kind of a joke. I don't like doing weddings. Because basically, you have to deal with momzilla and bridezilla. And not every couple, not every mom, not every bride is a bridezilla or momzilla, but they all have elements of it. I'm just going to say that. Even my own children, when they've gotten married. I don't like weddings. It's a lot of pressure. But there is one thing that is consistent. As I get the couples up here, we do the rehearsal, I line up the, the, the attendants. And for some reason, the people that get married in this church like to have like 30 attendants. What is with that? Like, our platform's only so big. We got people standing outside, you know. It's like, anyway, so we bring them up here. We line them up. And the first thing we do is get them lined up because we want to make sure that they're in good position to be able to see the bride coming in. And I tell them, you're going to, you know, when you come in, you're going to go to these spots. So we practice getting them lined up. Then we go out and then we come back in so they know where to go. Makes sense, right? So then the next thing that I have to tell them is the moment that bride breaks that door, the moment she comes through there, You people right here, even you men, men, men. Yeah, they're always doing something else. As soon as the bride comes through that door, you're looking at one thing the rest of the service, her. You know why? Because if we look at her, everyone else will. If you're looking up there because there's a spider or something crawling around, they're going to look up there. If you're looking down at the floor, they're going to wonder what is wrong with that man's feet. Okay, they will look where you look. It's one of the simplest things about a wedding. Listen, believers, friends, wherever you look, they will look. If you get in trouble and you look at your bank account for answers, then you are teaching others to look at their bank accounts for for answers. If If you get in trouble and you look to the things of this earth to satisfy you, to save you, then you're telling others to look there too. But if when you get in difficulty or even when you're doing well, if you look to Jesus and you follow him with all of your might, then you are teaching the people around you to look to Jesus as well. 
friends, I believe that's where we will find success is to turn the gaze of our soul to the Savior. Let me share with you yet another prayer. And again, I say this every week, and I'm going to continue to say it. This is not a replacement of your heartfelt prayers to God. It's simply a place that you can begin as you try to figure out how to live out what I'm sharing with you this morning. So read this, if you would, um, to yourselves and pray it to yourselves as I read it aloud. Oh, Lord, I have heard a good word, inviting me to look away to you and be satisfied. My heart longs to respond, but sin has clouded my vision till I see you but dimly. Be pleased to cleanse me in your own precious blood and make me inwardly pure so that I may with unveiled eyes gaze upon you all the days of my life. Earthly pilgrimage, sorry. Then shall I be prepared to hold to behold you in full splendor in the day when you will appear to be glorified in your saints and admired in all them that believe. Amen. Father, we come before you today, and again, Lord, we thank you for your holy word, um, which brings enlightenment to us, which helps us to know better who you are. We thank you for the gift of Jesus and, and sending him to this earth to be lifted up in such a horrible way so that all men who see him could be drawn to him. We pray that you would help us to be able to look upon you in difficult times and in good times as well. Lord, help us to fix our gaze on you so that you can truly be the author and the finisher of our faith, the initiator and the one who brings it to completion. Lord, we want to go the distance. And Lord, I can't help feel like, but feel like that the church of Jesus Christ in, in our day and our age and in many ways is not running the race in such a way as to win. We're running the race in such a way as to survive. And I don't believe that's what you want from us. Help us to see you in all of your glory. Help us to lift our eyes and to lift our gaze to you and to see you looking back at us that we might know how to live and how to win this world for Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.